I'd heard a lot of stories of people who surgeons who started out going after surgery centers and, you know, years later still did not have a approved center. And it was always inexperienced builder or inexperienced architect or inexperienced something. So I just looked for people with experience. And then when I built my other centers, same deal, but I just took the same team. I took the people who worked and kept them and the people who didn't and, you know, uh, fired them and just moved on. And I think that's the way to do it. Was your second one much easier than your first? Did you know, you know, did you have some lessons learned from the first one? Well, I was trying to make it better, right? I was, I took, I definitely like, I force marched, I like trail of tears, marched that architect through the first one and said, this door is too low, you know, like every little thing. And he, (laughs) he just placated me and nodded. And, um, but then we, you know, we got to the second one and I was like, dude, let me see your list. You know, and we we really worked hard to try to get better at everyone. This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities and future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. I am your host, Trisha Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. Today's episode of the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast is an interview with Dr. Lieberman, Medical Director of Phoenix Spine and Joint, a multidisciplinary spine and orthopedic surgery practice with three surgery centers located throughout the Phoenix area and a fourth one on the way. Dr. Lieberman shares how he started his practice, grew his practice, and how he serves his patients with minimally invasive procedures. So Daniel, uh, welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Tricia. So you are the medical director of Phoenix Spine and Joint, correct? Yes, I am. And you yourself specialize in neurological surgery, but um, can you share kind of the background of Phoenix Spine and Joint with the audience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I was a neurosurgeon. I myself developed essential tremor. And as a result, I had to give up surgery. But for most of for you know most of my career, nearly all of it, that's what I did. Um, Phoenix Spine and Joint was my practice. And um, the, when I first came back home, I grew up here. When I first came back to Phoenix to practice after completing my training, I was at Good Sam, and I got an opportunity after about three years to buy. A hospital, which I did along with uh, 12 other surgeons. And we operated there together for uh, five years and then sold it. And uh, that went really well for us, but I didn't have anywhere to operate. <laughs> so, so I opened a surgery center. I decided, well, I'll just do, uh, you know, um, outpatient surgery from now on. So I opened a surgery center and then over time that one turned into two and then two turned into three. So now I've got three surgery centers and I myself no longer operate. So I've, it's been quite a roller coaster experience and from, you know, private practice to hospital company to surgery center company, and now just surgery centers. So what drew you to first be attracted to neurosurgery in the first place? You know, um, when I was in med school, I think you kind of know whether you're a surgeon or a real doctor. 
And uh, I couldn't imagine being in a room taking care of people or spending, you know, I, I saw myself as a surgeon and then it just kind of comes down to, okay, where are you going to make your cut? And I couldn't stand the smell of bowel gas. Like I didn't want to be a general surgeon and mucus just grossed me out. And I loved neuroscience. I mean, I loved it. I loved the brain. I actually didn't know that much about spine surgery. So I thought I was going to be a brain surgeon. And, um, you know, I just kind of, that's, that's the way it went for me. And then what prompted you to go into private practice and open up your own medical practice? Yeah, that's in my case in particular, um, my, I I was, uh, you know, I went to what a lot of people would, what most people rank as the number one training program in America, the university of California at San Francisco for neurosurgery. And 99% of the people go into academic practice, but the academic practice when I was out was just kind of bankrupt. There were a ton of neuroscience PhDs. That was a new thing. And I thought, gosh, like I would be, you know, the the neuroscience that surgeons are going to do is going to be kind of chump change compared to what these legions of PhDs are going to do. And I looked around at the procedures I was doing. Virtually everything we did came from a company and not a lab. And so I thought, well, I'm going to get out and kind of pursue a different path. And so I went into private practice. Well, and, um, you know, you started spine and joint, which is now several practices, but you talk about being very patient centric and your practice includes 24 physicians. Um, at, at least that's what I saw, um, uh, neurological surgeons, orthopedic surgeons, podiatry and pain management. So talk about how you grew that to be what it is today and, you know, what you guys offer your patients. We did a really good job when it was just my own itsy bitsy little practice. We did a really good job of, of kind of managing the practice around the patient experience. Actually thought for years and years and years about, well, what do we make? What do we actually do? Like, how should we manage this thing? And for a long time, I thought, well, I want to be a focused factory for surgery. Like what we, our products are laminectomy, microdiscectomy, spine fusion, ACDF. And then at some point I realized that's actually not what we do. What we do is create an experience for a patient. We're much more like Disney than we are like a factory. And so we kind of switched gears and started managing the practice based on how patients experienced it. And that was a dramatic change for us in the practice, which carried through into the hospital and later into the surgery centers. And so we went, you know, a typical hospital has even the best hospitals in Phoenix, you know, what we used to call good Sam, which is now banner university or um, St. Joe's they have Prescani patient satisfactions in the mid seventies. My, my surgery centers, you know, if it goes below 99.5, I'm pissed. Like we, we, you can achieve a patient experience in a surgery center. That's just totally different night and day from a patient experience in a, um, in a hospital. And so that's what, that's what we did. And we do now have over 30 surgeons using the facilities and we just try to make that where the whole team is committed to making that perfect experience, not only for our patients, but for our other stakeholders, which are our surgeons, our families, our staff. So that, you know, you got a lot of, a lot of people to satisfy as a surgery center these days. And 
And that's what we try to do. And what's one thing that you do in particular that you think sets you apart with regard to the patient experience that allows you to achieve their high results and patient satisfaction? We start out by identifying what we think is the best. So in, in every category, we have this, like right now for knee replacement, we believe that the best, uh, and this, this by we, I mean me, this comes from me kind of looking at the research and talking to people. And I think right now, the very best knee replacement, if I was going to have a knee replacement or if my mom or my sister, we would want a robotic assisted, minimally invasive muscle sparing outpatient approach. And so we start with that and then say, okay, in this market, there's 50 surgeons that do uh, knee replacement, but there's really 10 that know how to use the robot right. So we start with those 10 surgeons. And of those 10, five do a muscle sparing, quadriceps muscle sparing approach. So we just hit bang on the door of those five and get them to come to our center and try it out. And then we pair up that surgeon and that team and that equipment with digital marketing to get patients who want those same kind of experiences. So we market Phoenix Spine and Joint. We have 2000 followers on our Facebook. Our YouTube channel has just over that. Our website gets 15,000 visitors a month. Like we try to get the message out about why that is the best and how we offer it. And there we try to create this kind of like horizontally integrated patient experience where we offer the best surgery that's available from the best surgeon and then give you the best experience. You got to, that starts when you park, how you get into the facility, how we treat your family while you're having surgery, how it feels when you leave your pain, your perioperative pain control, all of those things go into that experience. So it's kind of like we picked the right movie you know, to show the best movie to show you. And then we put you in the cushiest chair and served you the best drink and kind of made it, made it a good experience for you to watch it. Well, that's innovative because of the people I know that have to consider spine surgery, it's usually told to them to be painful and a long recovery. And, and honestly, the outcome isn't guaranteed to be successful and relieve the pain. So in a lot of cases, you know, if they're young and have young children or, you know, if they're older and they don't want to go through that kind of recovery, I've I've heard them actually opt not to get it and just live with the pain. And I I find that to be um, interesting. Yeah. I mean, um, some of that I would definitely agree with. Um, Spine surgery, if you look at the outcomes is as good or better than any other form of orthopedic surgery. But if you look at the complications, they're horrendous. So it's not, it's not that the outcomes aren't as good. It's that the risk, if something goes wrong, is off the charts compared to the other surgeries. Like we were just talking about knee replacement surgery. Man, if that knee replacement surgeon totally screws the pooch and doesn't use a robot, puts in the wrong size implant, you might be off, but your bone's going to remodel and a year of physical therapy and a year later, you might be just fine. Whereas if that spine surgeon screws up to the same degree, you're paralyzed. So it's different stakes and it's different risk. It's also though different reward. The the neurological diseases in general, whether it's brain or spine, they're just so much more functionally acute. And so it's, yeah, it's one of those things. I really worry though, whenever I hear about people who don't want to have surgery and want to live with the pain, 
I want to make sure they're not taking narcotics because the incidence of narcotic abuse is higher than the incidence of spine disease in our country, right? So a lot of people got into this, uh, They, you know, half the people in my practice when I had one who I ever tapered off of narcotics didn't have any pain. They were just drug addicts. And so you got to, I'm not, and I'm not saying anything about your friend or anything, you know, anything yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. You do. You really got to watch out for that. You got to watch out for that. No doubt. So you, you know, you get to a point where you want to open a surgery center. So take me through your considering your first surgery center. What's going through your mind as to where you want to first open up and one and why? Yeah. The location for surgery centers um, for me was, was totally based on need. You know, I was sort of staring down a big pot of money from having sold my hospital so I could go anywhere I wanted and I didn't need anybody's permission. And it was going to be just me there. I didn't, you know, the meeting was me getting in the car and checking stuff out. So I decided to go where the competition was the lowest, which was out in Goodyear. There was virtually nothing out there. It was a 20, 30 minute drive. I live in central Phoenix. So it's a little drive from my house, but I thought, well, location would be good. So definitely location. I think for, I was in a really unusual and unique situation. For most people, you're going to go into a surgery center with partners and more than any other, that my top 10 things would be your partners, your partners, your partners, seven more times. It's in medicine, you know, we're, we're doctors tend to be star performers. We're crap managers and we're craptastic partners. So if you can find people who, who you can partner with, uh, that's going to be really, really good for you. And um, almost all the really unhappy doctors I know, what has made them unhappy are their partners, either at home or at work. So, you know, partnership is is definitely the most the most important thing and the thing that I would look to the most. Well, and surgery centers are quite expensive to build out. So, you know, you you find this location and how did you approach the construction, tenant improvements, um, you know, selecting a GC, all of that stuff? My first surgery center was a tenant improvement. It was a medical office building uh, that had a landlord and I had a broker um, who was able to get me a very generous tenant improvement uh, budget. And um, I selected an architect who um, had a lot of experience doing surgery centers, which really is crucial. And then the, the architect, you know, the, the landlord ultimately has the prior, has the determine, determines who is the construction company, but they let me interview them. And I mean, basically I just wanted somebody, I'd heard a lot of stories of people who, um, surgeons who started out going after surgery centers and, you know, years later still did not have a approved center. And it was always inexperienced builder or inexperienced architect or inexperienced something. So I just looked for people with experience. And then when I built my other centers, same deal, but I just took the same team. I took the people who worked and kept them and the people who didn't and, you know, uh, fired them and just moved on. And I think that's the way to do it. Was your second one much easier than your first? Did you know, you know, did you have some lessons learned from the first one? Well, I was trying to make it better, right? I was, I took, I definitely like, I force marched, I like trail of tears, marched that architect through the first one and said, this door is too low, you know, like every little thing. And he, (laughs) he just placated me and nodded and, um, but then we, you know, we got to the second one and I was like, dude, let me see your list, you know, and we, we really worked hard to try to get better at everyone. It was uh, easier in some ways in that 
We didn't have the old problems from the first center, but there's an infinite number of problems. And I, I'd say overall, it's a pretty, pretty uh, significant undertaking to either acquire your own hospital or build your own surgery center. And it's not for the faint of heart. You gotta, you gotta be willing, you gotta be a control freak and you're willing to kind of roll up your sleeves and get in there and do it. And if you're a busy surgeon, those really, you're definitely a control freak if you're a busy surgeon, but, <laughs> but you shouldn't have time. You shouldn't have spare time. So I would say for most people today, you're probably looking at finding a partner who can, who can do it for you. Like a business partner to compliment you. Yeah. Or, man, or a management partner or just right. somebody who's been there, been there, done that, knows what they're doing and uh, takes their job as seriously as you do. Right. Like you do. I imagine mm-hmm. take your job as seriously as the people you work for. Absolutely. That's what you need. Well, I um, we're going to move on now to uh, the Q&A portion of the interview. I've, I've loved learning more about you and your practice. It's fascinating. What was your first job? Like ever? Or, you know, first professional job, either one. Uh, well, um, I've only had one professional job, and that was being a neurosurgeon. <laughs> um, you know, when I moved back here, I, I joined a practice but I was basically self-employed neurosurgeon and I've never been anything else until I, until I lost the ability to operate because of the tremor. And now I'm kind of just retired neurosurgeon disabled, I guess, neurosurgeon, but it's uh, yeah, that was my first job. I had a bunch of jobs. I was a lot, I was, a, I made bagels when I was in seventh grade and I was a law firm messenger for my dad's law firm when I was in high school. And, you know, in college I was a math tutor in a computer lab and, so I had some job jobs, but my first professional job was my only one, which was a neurosurgeon. And so obviously now you're not a practicing physician, but do you think you could be doing anything other than being in healthcare and in the medical field? It's funny how, um, you know, a lot of us surgeons, our skill set is so focused. There's actually sort of nothing else you can do. <laughs> I mean, I could, I, I would go from neurosurgeon to flipping burgers in terms of my, my, you know, years and years and decades of training really don't qualify me to do anything other than what I did. So, uh, it's pretty steep. It's pretty steep, um, steep utilization function there for us surgeons. So yeah, not much. Yeah. But you know, um, I'd have to say that uh, I think you're qualified for a, a lot more. I mean, obviously you've been in healthcare, you started a practice. I mean, there's a lot there to jump off of. Yeah. Well, now I'm writing fiction. That's something I'm qualified for because I can type. That's all you all you got to be able to do is type and have an imagination. So I'm doing that. But um, it's uh, I and my I did reopen my practice, but only on YouTube. I am I am seeing pa- patients, but I'm seeing them as a fake doctor, literally live on YouTube. Um, we have a new a new show called The Clinic, uh, which we premiere pretty much every Friday. And the idea is to try to educate the public about these spine and joint conditions by showing them we built an exam room that's a studio you know there's a lot of professional lighting and what have you and so it's a kind of a fake uh a fake exam room we um, i call it the exudio it's an exam room studio so i am doing that but you know as far as a profession uh there's stuff you can do for sure yeah. try to stay busy and try to help other people and try to inform the public but job job there's not too much you can actually do but that's super creative. I'm glad you did that. That's fascinating. Hey, you should watch our show. It's called I The will. Clinic. Our, our YouTube channel is Phoenix Spine and Joint uh, on YouTube. Subscribe. Ching. It's um, it's uh, really, 
I'm, you know, it's kind of like everybody else has their own reality TV show, except for doctors, like there's court TV and there's, there's everything, right. Every other thing, but there's no medical reality television. And so that's what we're trying to do. Well, and I think it's good to inform the public. I mean, I think if you're going in for a procedure, you want to get educated on it to some point where you can ask the physician some really good questions because, you know, I mean, you're being anesthetized and you're under the knife of this other person who's, you know, just another human. And if you don't ask questions about the procedure and, and have, um, educate yourself a little bit, I I think you go in just sort of in blind faith. Oh yeah. And you know, it's so generational. Like when I started practice, most of the patients were my parents' generation, kind of not baby boomers, even before them, the greatest generation. And they just basically did everything because an expert said to do it. And then the baby boomers came along and they were kind of like, uh, can you tell me why you think that? And then the Gen Xers were kind of, you know, just mini baby boomers. And now the millennials are kind of like, what do you mean? Cause I I've got these three articles and I, you know, I've done my, I see it differently and uh, it's great. I, you know, I just think it's appropriate for as when you're the patient, you're the customer, right? So you should get treated the way that you want to be treated. And what, whether that means more information or less is up to you, but I, myself personally, I can't believe the disparity between providers People kind of think a doctor is a doctor and a surgeon is a surgeon, but they're not. There's dramatic differences as a medical director, just in in everything and in the complication rates and the time it takes to do the operation. And if you've never had a better opportunity than today to find out what are the things that you need to know. I opened a website called hipreplacement.info, which uh, we have a how to choose a surgeon tab. And there's, I give you a, um, a, a, a rote script for an interview, like ask these 10 questions and here's, and I did it with the graphic of the prince and the frog, like, here's the right answer. Here's the wrong answer. Mm. What kind of an approach do you use for hip replacement doctor? If they say, uh, you know, I use whatever is appropriate for my patient. They all do well. That's the wrong answer. Right. The right answer is. There's several approaches. I was trained to do the minimally invasive anterior approach. I always do that because I want my patients to have a uniform outcome. I've been doing it for, I've done over a thousand. I do over a hundred a year, you know, knowing what the variables are and then interviewing people for the job, J-O-B of being your doctor is super important in, in, in my opinion. Absolutely. Absolutely. What or who are you reading or listening to right now for news information or inspiration? I took a time out on the news a couple of years ago. <laughs> I've, I, you know, I just felt like this is just kind of gross. And so I stopped watching the news and never went back. I, I all, and I, I honest to goodness, I have not missed it. When I was a, I was a national Institute of health doctor for three years, I was probably spending three to four hours a day on current events in DC. And um, that, that's just stupid. Like you don't need to do any of that. Right. <laughs> so all that's done for me. I do read a lot. Um, I read both fiction and nonfiction. I tend to be a classics reader. Um, So I read stuff like, you know, I'm an F. Scott Fitzgerald reader. I've read everything Hemingway ever wrote. I I try to read uh, current things. 
uh, in my in the genres in which I'm trying to write. But uh, you know, I'm I'm more of a classics kind of a reader. And then I love uh, social media. I, I am living so much better through social media than than I ever did before it. Just the you can, you know, if you set up your Twitter or your Instagram or your Facebook to follow topics you're interested in, you can get killer info from all over the world. I follow data science, um, artificial intelligence, anything having to do with space, although I don't understand astronomy, you know, I, I think it's cool. Um, so science and all that kind of stuff. So my news is basically a curated feed of what went on through the social filters and my, um, my entertainment is, um, is mostly classics. What is one thing you do every day for healthy self-care? Um, in terms of physically? Sure. Anything mentally, physically, whatever, something that you do. Yeah. Um, well, one thing that I do every day is try in the beginning of the day to make a list of the things I need to accomplish by the end of the day that are most going to impact my life. Like in my, in my world, there's just some things that only I can do. And, you know, us doctors being star performers, we want to knock out projects. We want to lay that wall and have it be the straightest wall anyone's ever seen in history. And you can put a laser on it and it's the straightest, but there's a lot of people who can build a wall. There's only one person who can do X decide where to put the wall or, you know, doing the things that only I can do on a day-to-day basis and keeping track of the performance priorities and what actually needs to be done that only I can do. And then just having the discipline to do it, even if it sucks and you're not going to finish it that day and it's not fun. And it's in fact, the opposite of fun It's boring, you know, as anything, but if it's what I need to do, then having the discipline and the schedule to do it then that's, that's what I do. And then at the end of the day, I'm never ever like overwhelmed with a feeling of falling behind or regret, or, you know, I knew what I was trying to accomplish. If I didn't do it, I know what I'm going to do finish tomorrow. And if I got it done, then I have the, the satisfaction of knowing that I'm finished. Do you think a person is born with a desire to heal? Um, or do you feel that they are, they just learn that skill along the way? Or do you think that there is an innate desire to pursue the practice of medicine? Oh, no, I definitely think it's the former. Um, That and a a sick parent, you know, are 90 plus percent of doctors. The the vast majority of doctors in in Judaism, we call it tikkun olam, like the, the desire to heal the world, to fix the world, to make the world a better place. And it takes on different forms, like it's cleaning up the campground, to some people, right? But to us doctors, it's caring for other people and helping them. And very, very, very often, I mean, it's if you start talking to doctors, you will find a very common history is they had a parent who was ill and they wanted to help and they saw the role that doctors played in taking care of the person that they loved the most. So I, the, a lot of us have that common experience and I mean, I had a doctor working for me once, a doctor named Sandy Garrett, and she she once told me, she said, yeah, I I remember when I was a girl, I, I just, I looked around at my family and I I just realized I'm the most competent person here. Like it's, it's up to me. And I said, how old were you? And she goes, eight. <laughs> <laughs> I think that... I think that is a lot of us, like a lot of us were like, you know what? Um, 
I'm the only person here who gets it. And I'm going to have, it's, it's my responsibility to help everybody else. And, you know, I don't know whether Sandy at eight years old was more competent than her mother, <laughs> knowing her as a person, I don't doubt it. Like, I think there's a really good chance she was the most competent person in that family, but, um, but that she felt that way. That's a doctor that, that, yeah. that's who we are. Oh, I love that. Well, Daniel, it's been wonderful um, talking to you. I really appreciate your time to take and have this interview. Oh, Trisha, thanks for having me on. I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.